0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan,
1: And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we speak with a New York-based visual artist, Maryam Ghani, about her new documentary, What We Left Unfinished, which is part of a long-term research, film, exhibition, and book project centered around five unfinished Afghan feature films shot but never edited between 1978 and 1992. Later in the program, we talk about the new play, Scenes from 71 Years, currently on stage at Portrero stage in San Francisco. The play offers a snapshot of life under the grip of the Israeli occupation from 1948 until the present. Stay with us.
0: The new documentary, What We Left Unfinished, uses five unfinished feature films that cover the communist era in Afghanistan between 1978 to 1991, a period that was punctuated by the Soviet coup, invasion and withdrawal, and the handover of Power to Mujahideen Coalition, followed by a civil war. Maryam Ghani, a visual artist and the director of What We Left Unfinished, notes that, quote, the history of the communist era in Afghanistan is barely understood. I believe there are certain things that even people in Afghanistan are unaware of. Outside the country, people may know a little about the fight between the Soviet army and the Mujahideen rebels, but they do not understand any of the complexity and the dynamics of that era.
2: What We Left Unfinished, the film, came out of a longer engagement with the National Film Archive in Afghanistan, Afghan Films, which began back in 2012, when I did a digitization workshop in the film archive, along with colleagues from PADMA, the Public Access Digital Media Archive Collective that's based in Mumbai and Berlin. And at the invitation of Afghan Films, and as part of Documenta 13, the periodic exhibition, which in that edition was actually held partly in Kabul. We went into the archive and very quickly digitized 90 films at low resolution to serve as a proof of concept for a larger digitization project that the archive wanted to do. They wanted to digitize their entire archive, which is 6,500 reels of negatives and many more reels of prints. So, yeah, so that's how I first really came to know the archive and Then over subsequent years, as we continued to translate films, as I started to curate screening programs with the films we had digitized, as I began to write critical essays about them and really think through history, through the lens of these films, I built up more of a relationship with the archive and got into these kind of reciprocal exchanges with them. And I began to hear about this sort of irresistible rumor of unfinished films Mm. in the archive, and as an artist, that's really something that you know is always extremely intriguing—the idea of an unfinished project. The State Film Archive actually includes films from the '20s, mm. which were made by the King Amanullah, this um, really interesting figure in Afghan history who was responsible for a lot of the modernization of Afghanistan in the 20th century, but then was deposed and exiled. But he was personally very interested in film and brought the first film cameras and film projectors to Afghanistan. And when he went on a world tour in the 20s, he actually had a film crew accompany him and film his state visits to other countries and then send the films back to Afghanistan so that they could be projected, so that the people could see what he was doing while he was on this state tour to places like Egypt and Germany and the U.K., So those were the very earliest films in the archive. Those are the only ones that are silver nitrate and are much more unstable. And then there's a kind of period where there's not so much film. And then there's one film made in the 40s as a co-production, an Indian co-production, shot in Lahore, which is sort of anomalous in the history of Afghan film because it's a musical and it's really the only musical in the archive. Um, uh, That's called Eshkwa Dosti, Love and Friendship. And then, again, there's another little period of of rest. And then in 1965, you really have Afghan filmmaking start Mm -hmm. in earnest. Mm -hmm. And in 68, you have the official founding of Afghan films as a national film institute and archive. So from that point on, there's really a ramping up of film production in Afghanistan because you have state funding for film. You have weekly newsreels being produced. You have both feature films and documentaries being Mm -hmm. produced by the state. And then that gradually also, because there's people being funded to go study uh, film outside of the country. So there's uh, filmmakers who go to study at Vigeek, the, the main film uh, academy in Moscow. There's filmmakers who then come back and train other filmmakers in Kabul. There's this one figure, Sundaram Talwar, who's a, an Indian cinematographer who trains a whole series of Afghan filmmakers in the, in the 60s. And this creates a generation of filmmakers and crew who then really start to, to create a whole film industry that's not just state sponsored, but also a series of private production companies are founded in the late 60s and early 70s.
0: When the Taliban took over, they wanted to destroy all movies. And uh, some people try to save these by hiding them. Mm. How many films survived? How many reels survived? Do we know
2: exactly? Mm. Well, almost all of the archives survived, actually. Mm. So there are different variants of this story that exist, and I've heard a number of different versions of it over the years. But what is known for sure is that the entire negative archive was preserved. So what happened, we're pretty sure, is that the door to the negative archive was bricked over, and then a poster of Mullah Omar was put on top of the bricks. So nobody knew that the negative archive was there, except, you know, this small skeleton staff that had remained at Afghan films during the Taliban years. It's about six, six or seven people. It was all that was left during that time. And then they took as many positive reels, prints, as they could, and put them underneath the Steenbeck tables, the editing tables, and covered those up with fabric, draped them in sheets, basically. And then when the sort of boys who had been sent by the Taliban to, to take films for burning came, the staff gave them duplicate prints. So they managed to actually save almost everything that was in the archive, and uh, almost all of it has been preserved. I read this
0: story about this guy... Uh, Habibullah Ali, Mm -hmm. who risked everything, apparently, Mm -hmm. to save these films. And and he hit thousands of reels of footage showcasing Afghanistan's rich cultural history, Mm -hmm. knowing that if the Taliban find out, he faced certain death. So he basically hit them behind that brick wall with a poster of Mullah Omar on it. So Taliban basically failed to discover some 7,000 precious films that Ali and his colleague hit.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole staff collaborated on that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I've heard, and this actually comes up in my film, it was the first time I'd heard it in the interviews for my film, is that according to some of the staff who did stay during that time, they had actually a protector in the Taliban government. Mm -hmm. And that's how they were able to get away with what they got away with in terms of preserving all of these films. So nobody looked very hard for the films that weren't given to them because there was one person in the Taliban government who wanted to save the films, and so he sort of misdirected everybody else. I honestly don't know which version of this story is true, but to me the version with a government protector seems like the most plausible, and I think that's how film has survived through many periods when film was officially banned and many places where it was officially not supported is because there's always, you know, one person or a few people who who want to keep the films if only for themselves, yeah. right? It is definitely the mm-hmm. case that some courageous people
0: mm-hmm.
2: risked their lives oh, to, absolutely. to save this precious uh, history. I mean, I think the courage of the staff who stayed through the Taliban period is not to be underestimated yeah. because even to, to stay at Afghan films, in a time when film was not supported and was in fact officially banned, filmmaking was officially banned, to stay in an institution that is devoted to film is in itself an act of courage. To to maintain the integrity of this place through that period was was really, I think, quite brave.
0: The documentary focuses on films made during communist rule in Afghanistan from 1978 to 1991, Why did you decide to focus on this specific period?
2: Well, this specific period is really when you have unfinished films, and that has to do with the political turmoil of this time and the kind of rapid changing of regimes. So I don't deal with these in my film because I decided to focus on fiction films, but there's actually a a really large number of unedited newsreel rushes from 1978 to 79 and from 1991 to 96, which really testify to the the lack of an organized government or the lack of, of real government structure during this time. So 78 to 79 being the period when you have the rapid turnover of the communist coup d'etat followed by the um, placing in power of um, Nur-Muhammad Taraki, the um, head of the Communist Party, taking over the government as the official head of government. But then he's assassinated by his deputy and protege, Hafizullah Amin. And then Hafizullah Amin is in turn assassinated by the Soviets, who then put in their puppet regime. And then, you know, there's this changing of the guard leads to a lot of uncertainty and instability. So during this time, you know, the newsreel cameramen are shooting a lot of footage, but they're not actually editing it into newsreels to put into the theaters. And there's all these rushes that have never really been because dealt with. Because there are with. coups
0: and countercoups coups, and counter-coups, interventions, interventions and, and no.
2: so on. And then likewise from 91 to 96, this is the period when there's a handover of the government from the last communist president, Najibullah, to the Mujahideen coalition government And that, you know, quickly dissolves into a civil war between the different Mujahideen leaders. So during this period, again, the newsreel cameramen are shooting footage, but they're not editing it into newsreels because nobody's going to the theater to see a movie um, Mm -hmm. while Kabul is falling apart around them. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of footage from that time, which has really never been seen And in fact, the the archivists are are quite wary of letting anybody see it.
0: You focused on five films. Mm -hmm. So did many films end up being completed or there were only five specific films that you focused on were not finished? And the reason behind why these specific films were left unfinished
2: Yes, so there's a lot of films that were finished during this time. This is actually what a lot of the filmmakers refer to as the golden time of Afghan cinema, because there was a lot of state support for filmmaking, especially after the Soviet invasion, when the Soviets followed their sort of usual pattern of investing in culture.
0: An actress, I forgot her name, Mm -hmm. she compares that period to today, and she says... In the 70s and 80s, they told us, we will give you as much support as you need, but But you have to do what we are telling you to do. Mm -hmm. And now they can say you can do whatever you want, but there is no state support. There is no money. Yes,
2: exactly. That's Yasemin Yarmal and her analysis of the difference between then and now. I think, yeah, many of the people I interviewed who were involved in the arts at that time have a certain nostalgia for that era of state support for the arts and also because artists were elevated to a certain position in society that they never had before and certainly don't have now. Um, there were artist unions, the heads of the artist unions actually had diplomatic passports, Artists, prominent artists were given apartments in the MicroRayon district. They were given coupons for, for food in the state stores. I mean, there was a whole system of of support that extended beyond just funding for projects. It was really support for the artists as people. And that's certainly something they don't have now. And it was definitely something they didn't have before that time. So I think the nostalgia they have for that era extends beyond kind of wistfulness for a time when they could really make films with state backing it's also for a time when as people they were valued in a different way which yeah is is definitely it's still a fraught thing in afghanistan now to to be an artist to be engaged in work in film that's still a contested and complicated thing to do culturally. So,
0: as the people you interviewed in the film told you and you just, you know, reiterated was that they got a lot of state support mm-hmm. during that period. A lot of these people spoke about the prevalence of restriction and censorship.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, so I think one of the reasons I chose to focus on unfinished films, and that's the reason I picked these five films to to look at, is because they were left unfinished, is because unfinished films didn't go through the, the final level of censorship. So the films at the time were censored at three different points in their life, and the first was before production when they had to go through a censorship board for the scripts, And scripts could be sent back for any number of things having to do with content. And also, according to people who served on the censorship boards, if they just weren't good enough, they would also be sent back and not funded and say, you need to do another draft. But there were a number of different things in content that could trigger a script to be sent back for revisions. And then, of course, you know, while filmmakers were shooting, In the period of the most restriction, which is between 79 and 97, when the Soviets actually had advisors in residence at Afghan film, there would also be review of the dailies um, while filmmakers were shooting. And then finally, the security services were on the Mm -hmm. set to ensure the safety uh, of the crew and actors because uh, it was actually quite common for uh, people who were shooting on location to be targeted by... By the opponents of the government, because they had at, at that point really sort of made themselves into legitimate targets for attacks against the government because they were functioning as mouthpieces or, or faces or, you know, image makers for the government. And when these filmmakers used to go to Mujahideen areas, mm-hmm. they had to
0: negotiate with them to be able to to send in their crew.
2: Yes, they they did have to negotiate with them, but sometimes they weren't offered the opportunity to negotiate. They were just attacked Mm -hmm. (laughs) and had to kind of get themselves out of an attack any way that they could. There's a number of stories about being airlifted out by the Air Force from uh, a place where they were uh, shooting on location and then suddenly found themselves surrounded by or under siege by the Mujahideen.
0: They were actually using real
2: bullets, And
0: explosives, yes, and somebody it, got killed,
2: yeah. in general, in Afghan film, everything that you see is for real. Uh, everything is just done for real. And there is this kind of slippage between truth and fiction in that also some elements of documentaries are fictionalized, and some elements of fiction films are are true. So there is a way in which, you know, scenarios for films were taken directly from police files. Ex-spies were playing spies. All the soldiers in battle scenes were actual soldiers. And, you know, they were using real bullets in the prop guns because, they say, they couldn't find any blanks. So they just – and there was lots of live ammunition around. Obviously, they're in the middle of a war. So they uh, they just used the real bullets. And there was one tragedy where someone was actually shot on set because they didn't time – the action scene properly. So the five
0: films, the 1978 feature, the April Revolution was Mm -hmm. commissioned by Hafizullah Amin, who would seize the presidency in a coup the next year. Not long after that, he was overthrown and killed by the Soviets. Yes. And then there was another film called Downfall, made in 1987, Black Diamond, about the heroin industry and drug Mm -hmm. trade in 1989, Wrong Way in 1990, An Agent in 1991. Mm-hmm. So how did these films represent the social and political landscape of that period?
2: Yes, it, it is a quasi-historical document mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's made with, you know, these yeah. images that are mm-hmm. fictional. I think in terms of the historical record and using these films as a kind of historical record, that's where I felt they were most useful as unfinished films um, rather than finished films. Because, you know, as a finished film, when it goes through that final level of censorship that I referred to earlier, that's the point at which, as an edited film, a censor would actually go through and literally cut out scenes from the film before it was permitted to screen in theaters. And these films never went through that. They were raw. Yeah, they were still raw. And I think there's things in that raw footage that would never have made it past a final censor's cut. And the things that are those elements, those are the historical record for me. Because in Finnish films of the period, where you find the history, the real history, rather than the imagined history of this period, is in these background details. You know, there's one film from this period, Khokistar, Ashes, Mm -hmm. by Saeed Orekzai which has this one sequence kind of in the beginning of the film where it tracks down a hospital corridor and everyone in the corridor is an amputee. It's just this very brief shot, but it's the truest thing in that film, you know? And I think with the raw footage, you get to see more of those kinds of details, the places in which, like, the everyday violence that people lived with during that time, the violence that was required to sustain the utopian dream of the communists seeps into the frame and doesn't remain outside it. I've talked about these films as being kind of the fever dreams of Afghan communism, and I think they represent some of the truths of the time, but also some of its most important fictions. The dreams, so what these filmmakers wished was happening, but also some of the nightmares. So what they knew was happening, but wished wasn't happening. (laughs) If you can kind of picture that, I think... You know, you see both the desires and the terrors of the time in these films. What did you learn? I think, you know, for many Western audiences, when they see the footage from these films, the first thing that strikes them uh, is the, the kind of Western way that people live in these films. So the way women are dressed and made up and the dance parties and the alcohol and these things are maybe the most surprising or shocking to Western audiences. And to me, that was less, less surprising or shocking or interesting. To me, what was really interesting was the way in which the filmmakers were, as Latifah Fahmadi says in the film, trying to construct a vision of a different kind of life, a, a real secular existence, a secular culture, an existence that was apart from religious divisions, ethnic divisions. So this kind of vision of an Afghanistan that didn't quite exist yet. Because Um, these filmmakers, some of them were uh, attacked because of the way
0: they portrayed women in the films, or there are scenes of a man and a woman
2: being in bed together. There's, I think, a number of reasons why the filmmakers were targeted, and that certainly may have been one of them. They did push against some of the cultural and social norms. And then there were red lines that they still did not cross. So there's still people, men and women didn't kiss. They didn't show love scenes. There's never any nudity. There, there's yeah. not, you know, it never went past a certain point because it was still the Islamic Communist Republic yeah. of Afghanistan, which is an amazing contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, and they never did forget that.
0: These films help us mm. get a better understanding of mm. social and political and artistic landscape of that period and how mm. it radically changed when Taliban took over in 1996. Of course, with the arrival of uh, Mujahideen, things have started changing as well. I mean, what kind of a society mm. those films projected?
2: Mm. I mean, I think for me, the films are above all a record of the life of this particular set of people, this particular slice of Afghan society at the time. And it's a history of, you know, what was happening above all in the cities, during the communist period, which is not a history we hear about a lot. But what was happening in the cities, which remained under regime control, under the control of the communist regimes for almost this entire period, most of the cities, was an actual communist experiment. You know, it, it wasn't all just this war in the countryside between the Soviet Red Army and the Mujahideen. In the cities, people were actually living the Afghan communist experiment, not always happily. You know, and not everyone benefited from it in the same way that these filmmakers did. But there was a real integration of women into high-level positions in government. You know, women were doctors, they were lawyers, they were, you know, entered higher education in record numbers. There was an attempt to create a kind of secular society that hadn't really been attempted before in some places. But all of this was bought at a tremendous cost. And the cost was that everyone lived on this knife edge all the time because at any moment you could be arrested and, and jailed and never makers, heard yeah. from again. And that's, you know, that was a real fear. And it was a thing that happened to people all the time because, you know, by the mid 80s, there were 20,000 people working for HUD, the the state security agency, and half of them were informants. So it was a surveillance state by the middle of that decade.
0: What happened to all those filmmakers? I know one of them lives in San Francisco Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. One of them told you that he... He went to India, another mm-hmm. one went to Moscow. What happened to the other filmmakers? Mm. Did anyone
2: stay? Of the directors that I talked to, none of them stayed. So they all fled to various other places around 91 when the when the Mujahideen came in. I think they were all too prominent, too well-known. Uh, some of them left even earlier at points when they became disenchanted with the regime and with the, with the project and how it had gone off the rails. Where they went depended to a large extent on their own connections and their own background and where they had been trained. So Fakir Nabi went to India because he had trained at Pune. And so he actually had a lot of connections in the Indian film industry. And he had a whole career in the 90s and early 2000s in Indian film and serials on TV as an actor, because he's primarily an actor and only secondarily a director. And Juancher Haideri actually went to Tajikistan, he's Tajik, and he he spent, you know, uh, 10 years in Tajikistan with his family and had a career in Tajikistan. And General Latif, who had made a lot of connections with filmmakers in the Stans and the Soviet republics through showing his many films at film festivals, went to Moscow and was able to work in Moscow. So, yeah, they'd had different ways of managing that. Uh,
0: Did any of them come back to Afghanistan after 2001?
2: Yes. Many people who worked at Afghan Films came back to Afghanistan pretty much immediately after 2001 and came back to Afghan Films. So there's a lot of continuity, actually, in the staff between people who were there before and people who are there now. There's, There's a tremendous amount of knowledge that was carried over because the people came back and brought back their knowledge. So Latif came back, and he was the first head of Afghan films after 2001. Joan sher came back, and he's the head of the Afghan Filmmakers Union. And um, Fakir Nabi came back a little later and, and now does like a lot of work in Afghan TV serials. So all three of those came back. So after the fall of Taliban
0: in 2001 and the establishment of a transitional government, mm-hmm. Afghan cinema, as you said, just came back and mm-hmm. some of the old people came back and there mm-hmm. was a continuity. So what's happening to the film industry in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. both ones that are state supported, but mostly Afghan artists and filmmakers who want to Make independent films. Mm-hmm.
2: so there is n- not really a lot of state funding for film at this moment. There is still Afghan films still exists, and uh, radio television Afghanistan, which is the state television and radio service, also still exists mm-hmm. and is is quite substantial. Um, Afghan films is now sort of split into two parts. so the the archive of Afghan films, which is, a big part of its legacy is now in it's now part of the National Archive of Afghanistan, and then there's still a production arm of and Afghan films. And it's in films. the
0: presidential palace.
2: It has been moved. Um, well, it's not in the presidential palace per se. It's in. Um, it's on the ground. On the. It's in, in the, the complex. In the larger complex, which is where the National Archives' new building is, so that's a temporary solution for the Afghan Films Archive. It's not a permanent solution. But it's the only building in Afghanistan at this moment that has actually proper archival conditions. It has climate control. It has vacuum-sealed cabinets. You know, it has all the things that we'd always wished for for the Afghan Films Archive. And it has, you know, they were already digitizing the National Archive. So also, it's a good atmosphere for digitization.
0: So how easy is it for people who are doing research to access this? Because it's in that... Very well guarded mm-hmm. compound, and
2: I know you are a president um, <laughs> on his daughter. Yeah, did that make a difference? Well, it made it more difficult for me, as it has made it more difficult for everyone, because I had been working with Afghan Films for five, six years at that point, and I had a relationship with the institution, and I had a contract actually with Afghan Films, you know, to license my footage. Uh, For my film, and we already had some of the digitization set up and in the pipeline. And actually, I had my DP and I had run a training workshop during the production of our film to train the staff in using the new telecine setup, which has just been put into place last year. Uh, So the footage for my film was the first footage to be telecined using the new setup. And it's lucky it was me because a lot of it was done wrong the first time and had to be redone. So (laughs) it was like training wheels, training wheels footage. But because uh, everything had to be physically moved, that set my timeline back by three months. Mm. And then I also had to renegotiate my contract. I had to renegotiate all my relationships with the new supervisor. Well, since I'm not physically there, it doesn't make much difference to me. I still have to transact my relationship through all of the official channels. And in fact, I have to be more careful about it than anybody else because everyone is scrutinizing me. Every I has to be dotted and every T has to be crossed. Um, And, you know, I have to be extremely transparent about how I do it. And I always have been, but I really have to be. Like that. Uh, apparently, I'm the only person who has ever paid screening fees to Afghan films for for screening programs that um, that I've done with their films. Nobody else ever pays them. So I don't know. I think I, I think our relationship is quite different than most people's relationship with the archive. I think it is a problem uh, for the physical films to be inaccessible. But you know, Afghan films' old building was also inside a green zone. That was not very accessible. Now it's worse, but it was never a good situation.
0: So Um, when you say this is a temporary Mm -hmm. solution, how long are we talking about?
2: Well, there's a new government complex being built out at Darleman, which is uh, this area that used to be west of the city, but now is part of the city because the city has gotten so big, which is actually... It was originally, Darleman was originally conceived of by Amanullah, the king I mentioned earlier, as the new government area. And that's what it was supposed to be when it was first developed. So it's now actually being developed as a new government complex um, so that when people need to go visit a ministry and so on, they don't have to deal with the traffic of the center city. Um, And they can just go to this area which is sort of in the suburbs and is like much easier to access and you don't have to spend two hours fighting with central Kabul traffic to to just go and like get something stamped at a ministry. And the idea is that Afghan films would have a new complex out at Darleman where there's also more land and they could conceivably actually have a studio for the first time in their existence. Like they've never had a studio where they could shoot on sets, which I think would be very exciting and then they could have a purpose-built archive. So that would be the ultimate solution for the physical films. But for me, the way that I think about preservation is the best preservation is projection. The best preservation is circulation. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing to do is digitize the films as quickly as possible and then get as many copies of them out into the world as possible. Mm -hmm. Because there's always the danger in Afghanistan that... The government will change, will exit this period of extreme media freedom that we're in right now that allows for so so much criticism and so much debate. Physical damage. You know, and then someone will once again try to burn the archive. That's always a possibility, uh, you know, and that's really what the fear is with having the physical films within the government complex, right? Mm. Because... They were always under the control of the executive branch because Afghan Films was a directorate of the um, Ministry of Information and Culture. So in terms of their actual status, their status has not changed. They're, they're still part of the executive branch. Now that they're part of the National Archive, that, that status is not different, really. It's just the physical location that is more vulnerable to regime changes and they're the whims of a new regime. And that is a real fear. I think it's a, it's a valid fear. So my feeling about it is that the best counter to that is to really digitize
0: Mm. and And really get
2: copies, mm. copies, 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 lots of copies in lots of places.
0: And I think one of the ways this can be done Mm. is Mm. through international funding. Yes. Because otherwise it's not going to be done. So are there Mm. enough interest around the world from people who are interested in in
2: archiving and preserving these films? Uh, Well, As far as I know right now, there's been some British funding because it's due to the British embassy buying the land that Afghan Films was located on that this whole move had to happen in the first place. So the British have actually put in some funding to help with digitization. And the initial funding for the telecine equipment actually came from Germany. So the Germans were sort of the first money in. But we definitely could use more help. The archive... I think a lot of what a lot of people don't realize about digitization is that it, it requires ongoing costs because of storage. Data storage is incredibly expensive when you're storing films, which are really, really large files. So it's not
0: a one-time process. It's not a
2: one-time process. It's it's actually like an ongoing yeah. cost, and it accumulates over time and gets more expensive. So you can't just buy the equipment and say, okay we're done, you actually have ongoing costs over time, not just the staff salaries, but also the storage. And as we digitize more films, there's also restoration costs where we're actually restoring films mm. and circulating them. So with the world premiere of my film in Berlin, we actually were able to also screen Three new restorations of films, two films directed by uh, filmmakers who are interviewed in my film, Latif Ahmadi and Juan Sher Hayeri, and then also a short essay film from 1996. By the way, I forgot to ask you, how did you find these people after so many
0: years, these filmmakers?
2: Oh, they're all still connected to Afghan films. So everyone I found, it wasn't that difficult, except for um, there was one filmmaker that was quite difficult to track down who I ultimately found through a panel discussion I did in Moscow and there was an Uzbek filmmaker on the panel who knew this other filmmaker from when he had been living in Uzbekistan and gave me the mobile number (laughs) of this filmmaker who at the time was in London.
0: When you were Mm -hmm. talking with them about their films Mm -hmm. and and some of them were even thinking about how Mm -hmm. they would finish the mm-hmm. film today. Yeah. So there was a sense of nostalgia, pride, mm-hmm. sadness. Yeah.
2: About what happened and uh, what could have been. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the most kind of serendipitous find of people was um, of people to interview was was Wali Latifi, who of course is the uncle of my field producer Ali Latifi, and Ali never knew that his uncle was a filmmaker. <laughs> This is something he discovered in the course of our research for the film. So this is a, a whole history that while he had that really wasn't known in the younger generation of his family and and really kind of emerged through through the process. He actually of
0: texted me. He said yeah. my uncle is in the film.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and the
0: whole family is gonna to go to the screening. Yeah. What we left unfinished is a long term research, mm-hmm. film, exhibition, and a book project centered around these five films that we've been talking about. What do you want this project to look like when it's finished? Mm. And what do you want it to represent? What's the message of this project?
2: Well, I think when I first started the research for What We Left Unfinished, I was very interested in thinking about the unfinished projects of, of the communist period, both artistic and political, and what it might mean to revive them in the present. I think over the time that it took to make this project, which was a number of years, this loose thread in history that I pulled, the existence of these unfinished films, led me through so many other subjects and ideas and issues and people. And it became a larger set of questions about the history of this period and why it remains so unsettled, for Af- Afghans for Afghanistan and why it also is so little discussed outside Afghanistan and why even though it is incredibly important to the story of why Afghanistan is in the place it is today it's very rarely talked about as part of the history of how we got here and i think you know part of what i wanted this film to do was to kind of revive the conversation about the communist period And the importance of that history, part of what I wanted it to do was to tell a different story of that time, which is the story of the people who were not caught up in the immediate war in the countryside, but were instead walking this knife edge in the city, benefiting, but at the same time fearing everything that was brought from the communist regime. And then I also really want to use this film as a wedge to open up a larger uh, discourse about Afghan cinema and the fact that there is an Afghan cinema and that there is this whole history, which is quite rich, of Afghan film. And really using my film to bring knowledge of that into the world and to generate more resources for the preservation of Afghan film.
0: And it also makes uh, the story of Afghanistan not just about Taliban Mm -hmm. and violence, but also it creates a more complex narrative of Mm -hmm. not only what this country was and is, but also what it can be.
2: Yes, I think one of the things that has been really powerful for me about screening films from Afghanistan in general, and I think it's similar with this film, is that You know, there have been so many different imaginaries of Afghanistan put on screen over the decades and by Afghans, you know. There have been very few, very limited, narrow imaginaries of Afghanistan put on screen by non-Afghans. But by Afghans, there's a much wider and more diverse and really interesting, rich range of, of Afghanistans that were put on screen. And I think when you show people that, when you show people all of these lost dreams of other Afghanistans, it does open up a very different way of imagining what Afghanistan can be in the present and in the future.
1: Maryam Ghani is an artist, writer, and filmmaker. Her work engages with places, issues, and institutions over long periods of time, often as part of long-term collaborations. She is currently a visiting scholar at the Center for the Humanities at the Graduate Center at CUNY and a fellow at the New York Public Library. Her documentary, What We Left Unfinished, was just screened at the San Francisco International Film Festival. You can learn about what we left unfinished project at maryamghani.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. <music>
0: about scenes from 71 years, a new play by the Middle Eastern Theater Company, Golden Thread Productions. The play is written by the award-winning Palestinian-Irish playwright Hannah Khalil, and it draws from stories of her own family and friends to reveal the real human story, the dreams, comedy, sadness, and frustrations of daily life under Israeli occupation. Dr. Michael Malik Najjar, professor of theater at the University of Oregon and the director of Scenes from 71 Years, calls the play a love letter to Palestine.
3: So the play was originally written as Scenes from 62 Years, and it premiered in London under the title Scenes from 68 Years at the Arcola Theater, and now we're having the U.S. premiere as Scenes from 71 Years. And I think Hannah's desire there is to have a living title that reminds us not only of the birth of the state of Israel in 1948, but also of the fact that ever since that time, there have been Palestinians living under occupation. Um, and of course, as we all know, those of us who've studied this conflict in depth know, there are many levels to this, what mm-hmm. happened in 1967, 73, it goes on and on. Uh, but this title reminds us that something is happening. Uh, it's not something in the past, something that we can just write off and forget about. And it also reminds us that perhaps... Will we be creating this play and calling it scenes from 150 years or Mm -hmm. scenes from 300 years? And will the topics still be as relevant? And that, of course, is a, a terrible thought that this could possibly be the case. But... Uh, the truth is, it does give us that moment of pause to reflect and to think about that very idea as a possibility. Mm. You know, I think that what Hannah did, she spent a lot of time workshopping this play. She had many, many more scenes than this, and she just kept cutting them back, changing them, rearranging them. She said it was a very arduous process getting to this collection of scenes and then putting them in this particular order as well because it's not chronological. Yeah. You jump back and forth from 48 to 73 to 2000. 2002, and it goes on and on. But this reminds me very much of what uh, the great Edward W. Said said about uh, in his book, After the Fall, the Palestinian narrative is too complex, too deep, and it has so many levels that we cannot just tell Mm -hmm. it in a linear fashion, in a simplistic fashion. Mm -hmm. It's a mosaic, call it what you will, it's a pastiche. Those are the only ways that you can really try to get your arms around something so enormous.
0: Scenes from 71 Years explores various notions of remembrance, resistance, and the uh, structural violence of the occupation and how it permeates every aspect of life in the occupied Palestine. For example, there is a scene of the shopkeeper who's not able to get his supply because of the checkpoints, or scenes of people standing in line at a checkpoint for hours and sometimes days And the scenes uh, from 71 years is made up of 31 short vignettes, and they're accentuated by date. Mm -hmm. Yet it's so interesting that those dates do not matter
3: at all. Sadly,
0: The dates and events jump around in a broken chronology, creating a very non-linear narrative. I was wondering, what were the challenges of working with such a non-linear script and trying to create um, a story with a narrative arc.
3: Well, of course, the difficulty is, how can you possibly jump from 1948, for instance, to 2002 without having a full set, costumes, a complete background everything it, it becomes very difficult because we have a very small uh, group of actors and these are
0: very short They're and very brief short
3: scenes Scenes, exactly so, so it, it would not make sense on many levels to try to co- faithfully recreate an entire house in 1948 mm-hmm. and then try to create another house in 2002 so we rely on theatrical devices like projections like costuming like uh, the different ways that actors carry themselves and speak for instance in 1948 I asked an actor not to use contractions in In order to give us a different sense of elevated speech from the way that we speak today with with many contractions, for instance. So these are the kinds of small shifts that we have to make in order to tell that story. But ultimately, the the question is, does it matter, really? Uh, In the end, what was happening forty-eight 1948 um, was not dissimilar to what was happening under the British mandate in the earlier years or what's happening at this time now. The Palestinians have been uh, living under occupation by different forces, whether it was the Ottomans or the British or the uh, current Israeli state, for for centuries. And so that is, the, the I think, one of the tragedies of the Palestinian experience that's often overlooked, and how long this sense of occupation has been going on, and how long that they have been treated as just pawns in a larger geopolitical game. Mm. And I think that, that that's where the dates fade away, and the truth of the situation becomes apparent.
0: Do you think the fact that this is a nonlinear linear script and it jumps around from 1948 to 67 to 2003 and 2006 do you think it this format help to tell that story.
3: I do. I do. Because I think that the danger of linear storytelling sometimes is it normalizes something. It says, well, it was like that in 48 and 49 and 52. And if you just tell it in that chronological fashion, there's a tendency to look at everything as a sort of linear arc. Well, it's always been this way. It'll always be this way. But when you jump back and forth and you see the resonances, of course, she's quite clever in the way that she used resonance in the play. And of course, we've also done... Different things. I've I've made some stylistic choices with design to remind audiences that the house in 48 occupied by Palestinians was the house in 48 that was taken over by the Haganah forces, which then became the house in 2002 that was occupied by an, by an Israeli. That becomes a story within a story. But those were made through specific design choices that I had, I had asked our projection designer to make. So th- these little choices uh, hopefully will have the resonances that will remind people that these are not disconnected events. And we cannot pretend as if history has happened and it's over and now we can just move on. That's not possible. We've got to always cherish and remember that history. Mm. The great scholar Susan slyamovich who's written about Palestine for many, many years, talks about the memory books that Palestinians mm. had created to remember and reflect on their villages that were lost. And so that became our motivi- motivating metaphor was the memory book. So the outside of the memory book is this olive tree and the inside, sadly, is a large concrete wall. But within that wall, if you look closely, uh, you'll see the names of the destroyed and depopulated Palestinian villages in Arabic and English. That for me was a necessary reminder, a memorial to those villages and those people that lived there. Of course, we couldn't put all 419 village names on there. But we did put a a number of them. And as a matter of fact, the two Palestinian actors in the play have their villages on that Mm. wall as well.
0: So that takes me to my next question. You've said that you spent a great deal of time thinking through the details. Can you expand on that?
3: Well, being a scholar, it was imperative to me that I didn't just make... um, artistic choices that that felt good to me, Mm -hmm. but didn't have any basis in reality. As a matter of fact, I gave the actors a 10 page research packet that said, in this scene, they're talking about this. And these are the sources that you can reference. These are the the places you can look up this information. So it's all based in dramaturgy. I am a deep believer in the dramaturgical process that that the work we put on stage should be informed by the research that we that we create as well, and that we study. Um, So that that was necessary because if somebody comes to me, let's say, and says, well, this play is a piece of propaganda, pro-Palestinian propaganda, I can very clearly turn them to multiple sources and say, well, actually, it's not. Let me explain why this scene is in this play. Let me tell you how this occurred. And actually, it's all based in fact. And the facts are actually more terrifying than anything we put on that stage. The checkpoints, for instance, they're basically corrals that you would put humans in that start very large and become narrower and narrower, where you have people getting broken limbs, being trampled, and being killed. Uh, Some people are giving birth in these corrals because they can't get out either way of the corral. And again, I, I will remind the listeners that they were living under British occupation before that, and so they were also living under difficult circumstances prior to 71 years. Mm. It, this is not a new story, and, and the question is, how long can this go on? Will we be staging this as scenes from 190 years, 200 years, 300 years? I don't know, but I hope not. I hope that this is not a story that needs to be told in the future. Unfortunately, right now, if anything, it needs to be told more so than ever.
0: What attracted you to scenes from 71 years.
3: Well, I'll tell you, plays about Israel-Palestine are what I call the third rail of arts and politics in America. There have been multiple examples of theaters that have lost funding for trying to put on plays that discuss this story. It's
0: um, a specific play.
3: Not, on, not the Israeli-Palestinian story. For instance, Moti Lerner, who's in his, a very highly regarded Israeli playwright, they tried to put on his play at Theater J in Washington uh, called The Admission uh, that talks about what happened in 1948. And the funders pulled the funding, and the play was not allowed to be put onto the main stage. There are many theaters in this country that are reticent about touching anything about this because if they do so they believe that they will get backlash from their audiences and their funders so they don't they don't even bother and that is terribly troublesome so I think that it's quite bold of a company like for instance Silk Road Rising that originally included this play in the Semitic Commonwealth play reading series of which I was a lead director and then Golden Thread Productions having the courage to say we're going to put on this play no matter what And we are not beholden to the same um, structures that keep other theaters from putting on plays about Israel, Palestine, Mm -hmm. because it is tragic, in my opinion, that we are not literally allowed to tell this story. In other countries, we have censorship by dictators. Here we have a kind of economic censorship that's all it is. Somebody says, we're going to pull the funding. You can't put on the play. You can't pay your personnel. Therefore, your theater shuts down because you dare to put on a play that's pro-blank, you name it. And that, for me, is a kind of censorship that is in some ways more pernicious than the kind of outright censorship we see in places in some place in the Middle East, for instance, where they'll tell you, you can't do this play because we don't they want you to. They just throw you in jail. <laughs> right. So that kind of pernicious censorship, I think, is something that undermines the idea, the notion of artistic freedom in this country. We talk about free speech. Well, can you have free speech when you don't even have the means to Mm. perform a play in a theater? And in a city like San Francisco, where the costs are so high that if you don't have that kind of money to put on this play, it'll never be seen. Let's be honest. But
0: I was wondering, what was your own experience trying to produce this specific play?
3: So a play like this, thank goodness we have a Golden Thread Productions that allows space for a play like mm. this. If this was done in a different venue, I could imagine producers from that venue coming in and saying, well, I think we need to tone down that scene about, or I think you need to just, maybe we need to just change the language in this particular place. But
0: really it starts from 1967 as opposed to 1948.
3: Well. You know, Edward Said wrote his seminal essay, The Arab Portrait, in 1967 after the war. And so for me, that was the seed that awoke our community to the fact that there is something going on here where people are consciously trying to misportray Middle Easterners in literature, art and film and theater. And so I think I'm part of that long lineage from Dr. Saeed through Dr. Jack Shaheen to what we're seeing today with uh, the Arab American and Middle Eastern American artists working in the theater. And by the way, Israeli American artists and Jewish American artists are also speaking out against what's going on there. So it's not just I, I want to be very clear. This is not just some some groups that are quote-unquote anti-israel for instance you have conscientious israeli american jewish american playwrights that are speaking out as well so i refuse the the false narrative that this is something that is a programmatic ideal that comes from one community only
0: so what do you want people to come away with after seeing this play
3: Um, there's a line in the play that i'd like to just it's one line i'd like to read to you in it he says this is our one day to reflect and remember our past what happened in this place, the things we must, none of us, ever forget. And for me, that is what this play does. It's a memorial. It's a memorial to the lives lost, to the lives that were destroyed, the lives that were imprisoned, the tortured, the dead. They have no monument. They have no plaque. It's shocking. You go to the Middle East, you go to Sabra and Shatila, where, where civilians were mercilessly slaughtered in a Palestinian refugee camp. There's no memorial for any of those names there. There are, there are mass graves that are still covered up and no one ever, they just drive by it every day and don't think twice about it. So a play like this serves as a living memorial to those lives that were lost and to the lives that are suffering, the people that are suffering today. And if, if a play can do anything, I think that is its great power to say, we've not forgotten you. We don't ignore you. We believe that you're... You're alive and you're, you matter, and we need to tell your story. And I think that is, uh, that's something that theater can do that many other um, art forms perhaps cannot.
1: That was Dr. Michael Malik Najjar, professor of theater at the University of Oregon. Malik spoke with him about the new play he's directing, Scenes from 71 years. The play is on stage now until May 5th at the Potrero Stage in San Francisco. For tickets and more information, visit goldenthread.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. You can listen to our show and hear other extended interviews on our SoundCloud page or on our iTunes at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Don't forget to subscribe to get our latest.
3: That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a status hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezi. You can find us on Twitter at Bomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at, at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.